You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience, your beacon of truth here at Conservative Review. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house, literally recording in my home studio today, even though the kids are home on spring break. So if you hear any screaming tantrums in the background, well, those of you with kids, I'm sure you could appreciate it and relate to it. Um, and yet, come to think of it, it's also lawnmower season too. So, gosh, that's the problem when my neighbors have their their lawns cut now. It's not their fault. They don't know I'm sitting and trying to record nationally syndicated show from my home. But uh, let, let me know if you uh, hear audio problems. Just in general, I'm trying to work on that. I got Joe Armacost as my producer. He's also the man behind the famous Dan Bongino podcast. He produces his as well. We were both uh, here in Central Maryland before Dan moved to Florida. So uh, Joe, for many years, was the sound engineer producer for one of the shows at uh, WCBM here on our flagship. So anyway, just apologizing ahead of time if there's any noise in the background. But uh, look, it's Wednesday. Um, still a quiet, relatively quiet week leading up to you know, the holiday weekend, Easter Passover, and I'm getting a lot of questions about the latest immigration news that we, we've called out the attorney general for a while saying, look, you know, even more so than DHS, this is really an attorney general issue. It's all about legal interpretation and why isn't he being more forceful? So we had the announcement last night that they are not going to allow bond hearings for certain people claiming asylum. And a lot of people are asking, well, Daniel, are they finally listening to you? Are they finally listening to us? Are they finally taking this issue seriously? And I want to give you guys a balanced take on this because I frankly cannot give a full opinion until we wait a couple of days and see what else they're doing. And if this is the end all or is this part of building gradual... you know, steps to put in place what we are calling for. But overall, I want to just generally speak about the theme with immigration and really other policies, that sometimes the easier thing to do and more effective thing to do, both policy-wise and also messaging to the public, is being categorical about an issue rather than agreeing to 90% of the premise, but then getting in the weeds on, well, I'll do this to manage it. And then, you know, you you lose on all sides. And my baseline concern, although I don't want to accuse the administration of doing this without seeing more, is that they're treating some of the downstream symptoms that are the least important and impactful, still fundamentally agreeing that we must bring in an invasion rather than address this at a systemic level, both in terms of our messaging and policy changes. And in order to do this, I do hope to be able to bring on Congressman Chip Roy, 
Because he's always one of the most categorical of anyone elected who's like, look, let's just speak the truth on health care, on debt, on immigration. I want to get his view. Uh, he's traveling to an event uh, today, and he promised to try to call me in his car. So I'll, I'll let you know if we can bring him in for a couple minutes. But until, until now, I just want to – till that point, I want to set the table on what – what is going on? So it was announced late yesterday that Attorney General William Barr said we're going to he as Attorney General, he is overturning recent determinations by immigration judges to grant bond hearings to those claiming a credible fear and being released or in order that they could be released pending the full adjudication. And he's going to overturn that. Um, which, of course, he can do because, remember, these are not judges. These are really Department of Justice officials. They're they're not Article Three judges. They're administrative judges, and the attorney general is ultimately in charge of them, just like he's in charge of you know the FBI, the U.S. attorneys, um, DEA, any agency under Department of Justice. So you know, immigration judges are part of the agency called EOR, not to be mixed up with the Donkey and Winnie the Pooh um, Executive Office of Immigration Review. So he controls that. And, you know, everyone's happy. This appears to be, oh, wow, are they finally addressing it? So as a baseline, this doesn't do anything. And as a baseline, this actually is a self-indictment that demonstrates that what they've been doing until now is even worse than we thought, although we've actually suspected that and articulated it beforehand. But again, there are some other encouraging signs of a couple of other things we're seeing that I want to believe this is not the end all and it's just the first step. So I want to, you know, put that out there. And I think, you know, by next week we'll 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 know which direction it's headed, and I'm hoping it's the better direction. But for now, let's just talk about the mechanics. They're saying that they're not going to release on bond those with a credible fear um that are not coming with a child. Well, we've been told and told now that the whole enchilada or most of the enchilada, is those coming with a child. Okay, so they're saying, we're not going to release single adults. So right when I saw this, I jumped out of my seat. I said, well, A, first of all, you're not solving most of the problem. But B, um, and I have it on good word that there's very few single adults claiming asylum anyway. But B, you mean to tell me, is that an admission that you've allowed the viper's nest of immigration judges under DOJ until now, a year into this invasion, roughly a year into it, to release even single adults. I mean, we've been told all the children, the courts, Flores, we can't do it, we got to release them. So, okay, the assumption was at least you're not releasing single adults. And they're like, we're no longer releasing single adults. I mean, really? So you've been doing that until now? Now, some will say, well, Daniel, no, you don't understand. It's not that you know, they're mandated by the courts, but just logistically, because there's so many um, family units that because of Flores and the courts, they feel they have to release. So it's jammed up the whole system on the intake level. So there's just, I mean, just practically, they had to release even single adults. But I mean, if that's the case, then it's still a problem, right? Then it's it's still, your legal determination, it's not a legal 
issue. And it's a logistical issue because of the legal issues you have with the rest of the system, which is most of it. So in other words, I just don't want people to let their guard down and start saying, oh, we solved the problem. Remember, oh, Trump's building the wall. It took us months to deconstruct that and say, no, well, that's not really the problem now. It's not going to help. So I don't want this to be like, oh, well, we ended catch and release. Well, no, it's actually for a very small percentage of people that they clearly shouldn't have been doing this, even even allowing for um, every California judge to ruin our immigration system. So I don't know what the deal with that is. But um, this begs a broader question that I'm as part of my broader research, and I'm going to hopefully put out some more articles on this, is are we completely giving up on our immigration system? Are we releasing, and it appears we are, even adults, and are we granting quasi-amnesty even to non-asylum seekers, bogus ones at that, and we're just like not deporting anyone? I mean, is that is is that what's happening? Remember, there's something called expedited removal. Even before 1996, what do you think Operation Wetback was? You're here illegally, we get rid of you. But in in 1996, they codified Section 235B1 of the INA um, that inadmissible aliens are placed into expedited removal. And what does expedited removal mean? There are no hearings, certainly not from an Article Three judge, but even from an immigration judge. Unless you have a claim that you have a green card or citizenship. Let, let, let's put aside credible fear for a minute. Let's just talk about all those without it. As I noted, there was a case... This guy, single adult, that's a child molester, was caught in Philly last week. And it seems like he was arrested by Border Patrol in 2012, released. And then he was uh, basically released by an immigration judge in 2016. But my question to ICE was, how did he get to the immigration judge? Why wasn't he put in expedited removal? And I don't have an answer to that. The reality is... It applies to everyone. Now, over the years, they uh, like everything else, they don't apply the law. And past administrations, when they wrote the original regulation of the 96 ex- expedited removal statute, they limited it strictly to one uh, arriving aliens apprehended at a designated point of entry. Aliens who arrived in the United States by sea without being admitted or paroled into the U.S. Um, by... Um, immigration authorities, and who have been physically present in the United States for less than two years, and or three aliens who are found to be within the United States within 100 miles of the border within 14 days of entering the country. But that's not what statute says. Okay, that those are administrative guidelines. They could change that. You could make it up to two years if you're caught, and, and the 100 miles is arbitrary. Most illegals, like, you know, a lot of you are probably wondering, like, what is it with this business? Like, you know, you're here illegally, you're, you're out of here. Like, you know, we're not even talking about legal immigrants that are criminals and, you know, remove all of those people. We're talking about illegal immigrants. So, you know, what's with all this lawfare? Well, what I'm here to tell you is that most of our laws are written normally and they're supposed to be removed. 
It was the administrations over the years limiting it. And then the courts saw they could get involved because the administrations were treating it like almost like they can't do this. And then they started doing stuff. Now, like any area of law, there are many different titles. And sometimes there's seeming conflicts between, well, I have the right to apply for this. But then on the other hand, they, they get to deport me. So what's the deal? But like anything else, it's, it's the courts that are screwing with it. So I'm going to talk about that more in the coming days, but that's the issue. And then even for those that claim a credible fear, so you are still a regular illegal alien. You're applying for discretionary relief. We should be turning down your requests and saying you don't have a credible fear. So then you're still in expedited removal, meaning if you're granted the credible fear and you're put on the asylum track, so you're taken out of expedited removal. But if we just say, no, you don't have a credible fear, we're turning you down, you're in expedited removal. Now, you could appeal that credible fear determination, but you have no more than seven days for that. The clock should start right away. And if we have the normal policies in place where they should, um, the immigration judges should properly interpret the law, they should be out of here within seven days. So why is the administration not going upstream at a systemic level and announcing instead they're like, yeah, you know, we're, we're just, you know, there's asylees, but we're just going to hold more of that. Like, OK, I'm, I'm for that, although they're really applying it to a very small number of people, which should never have been not applied to. But why aren't you saying across the board, a most systemically, we're shutting off immigra- all asylum? It's it's a it's a racket. Ninety percent are turned down. This is an invasion. Prima facie, we're shutting it down. Number one, if you don't want to do that, at least say we're turning down all asylum determinations. That is all left to the discretion of the adjudicators, based on attorney general guidance. Why isn't he giving that guidance? See what I'm saying? That cuts off the head of the snake right away. That legally puts them in expedited removal. Instead, you're putting them on a track. You're putting invaders on a track to asylum and then trying to chip away a little bit at the detention level. Why not do the immediate at the line of scrimmage, turn them down, and have a rocket docket immediately to dispense of the appeals and then then expedite removal? And then if you did that, you wouldn't even have to do anything with Flores. You could do that in under 20 days. But then that leads me to another question. Why are they not getting rid of Flores? They could do that. I've said it a number of times. They could do that administratively. They wrote the regulation to do so in September. They haven't yet promulgated it. Now, look, the, my point is they might be doing this, and I don't want to call them out on not doing it yet. But what I certainly don't want to happen, be, based on what I've seen until now, with them continuing stupid policies, is to get us all drummed up about this little thing downstream, but they won't do the big things that need to be done. 212F shut off, vitiate Flores, and end all asylum claims. And and message it. Trump needs to give a speech like this. The Attorney General needs to give a speech like that. DHS Secretary, although McAleenan is a, is a whatever, he's a Hillary supporter. That's a whole other situation. That these people aren't asylees. No, this is this is read the law. I mean, what's going on now at our border is unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. It truly is utterly insane.
There's all sorts of stories of violence now against Mexican authorities. Mexican immigration officers pulled from a town for their own safety after violent disturbances as 8,800 in this latest caravan uh, strands move inexorably to the U.S. southern border. I mean, why is this not being stopped? Why is this not being stopped? That's an invasion. If you're telling me you belligerently could march it, like there's one thing, okay, you have the individual guys, okay, you know, somehow you feel you have to do asylum even though we could shut that off, even though, but I mean, really, we we, we have to, <laughs> once you agree that we have to adjudicate an invasion as asylum, I mean, yeah, you could chip away at least the detention aspect and I, I, I'll take that, but, but why not go for the whole enchilada? Because, if you only do the latter, you're agreeing to the premise that this is legitimate. Sometimes it's better just to grab the bull by the horns and say this is this is this is an invasion. It's got to stop. You know, th- this is just out of control. It's very scary. So um you know, that's that's what's headed go, going on at the border right now. Now, the, the, the one good news is, you might have seen the El Paso Times as an article, U.S. plans more tents in El Paso elsewhere in Texas to hold immigrants in camps. So like, oh my gosh, that, that's great, Daniel, they're doing it. Trump administration, this is from uh, El Paso Times, Trump administration wants to open two new tent facilities to temporarily detain up to 1,000 parents and children near the southern border in Texas. Um, they said, I said in a notice to potential contractors that it wants to house 500 people in each camp with one in El Paso and the other in the South Texas city, city of Donna. Um, you know, they talk about having facilities to hold family units together. But again, my question is, are they doing that in preparation for what I'm talking about? Meaning that they're going to get the facilities in place to hold them. Then they're going to, the next thing they're going to do is rocket docket to turn these people down at the line of scrimmage and then turn dispense of the appeals and get rid of them at the border? Or is this just a way of, you know, treating one of the downstream symptoms of, oh, right now it's gotten so bad managing the invasion that we can't even turn them over to ICE because ICE is full, so we have Border Patrol downright releasing some straight up. So this will at least prevent Border Patrol from releasing people immediately, and they'll all go to ICE. Will that have some utility? Yes. You know, I'm going to have a whole big two-part series out on clear and present danger of catch and release and infectious diseases. So, I mean, clearly, if they're not even being sent over to the ICE facilities, there, there's no blood work, health screenings, or vac- vaccinations taking place to, to weed out, especially those that haven't exhibited symptoms yet but have already contracted the disease, if you wouldn't know it. But in terms of broadly stopping the invasion... It's a matter of the policies. It's not the logistics. So it might sound like they're doing some of what I'm asking for, and I certainly want to take yes for an answer. I certainly want that to be true. But I'm saying we have to make sure that it's the logistics being put in place to buttress the mechanics of the policy changes. That, no, this is an invasion. Really, we should shut it off completely. And if you come, you're going to be held in a tent city, and you're going to be expedited removal. We're turning down your claims right away. But if they're not going to do that, and it's just a way of 
getting more detention holdings, maybe holding a couple people for a little longer, but still absolutely granting the credible fear and agreeing to this whole thing. I mean, you, you already lost the debate, both mechanically with the cartels and smugglers and messaging-wise with the public. Either this is a fraud or it's not. Either it's an invasion or it's not. So I, I'm being kind of neutral here. I don't know what the answer is. It could be if you put the two together, they're trying to get 10 cities up. All right, single adults, we're not going to hold. Well, maybe they're going to say, well, now we're going to vitiate Flores and now we're going to hold the kids together. And frankly, we won't need to anyway because now we're turning down their claims. They might yet do that. I don't have any intel and I've tried to speak to some people. I'll let you know if I hear otherwise. But I'm just saying they've done so many stupid, gratuitous things like give work permits to these people when they don't have to that you know, it's hard for me to give them the benefit of the doubt until I see it. You know, this is this is just this is just out of hand. Alrighty, so we were able to get Congressman Chip Roy on the line, freshman congressman from Texas's 21st district between San Antonio and San Antonio and Austin. Um, obviously, many of you are very well familiar with him. I know you all follow him on Twitter, um, and you follow his work where he is relentless on our key issues, immigration and healthcare, one of the only ones give, giving a voice on it. So it is an honor, honor to bring back, gosh, the fourth or fifth time uh, to the show, one of our most prolific guests, Chip Roy. How you doing? Hey, Daniel, I'm doing great. I'm in San Antonio, Texas, so it's a great day to be alive because I'm not in Washington, but, uh, but happy to be down here talking to Texans who are, uh, you know, sick and tired of what's going on in D.C. and hoping that I'll be able to do something to uh, change it. Yeah, I get the most emails from Texans, so they will certainly be listening today. Um, I, I know why you're happy to be in Texas rather than in Washington. I don't blame you. But what do you think of the fact that in your state, more than any other state, we have going on at the border a phenomenon that cannot be described as anything else but an invasion? Um I mean, the security concerns, the healthcare concerns, the f- public charge concerns, the cultural concerns. It's unbelievable. It's now not subject to debate the magnitude and scope of this problem. And yet they take a two week vacation. And I understand you're working hard. A lot of other members, Republican or Democrat, they might have their schedule lined up. But what it's like, our work here is done. You know, it's really frustrating. Uh, last week, I did not feel we should be leaving Washington when they shut down on Wednesday. Uh, Very little I can do that as a single member of Congress. We're looking into ways that we might slow down the schedule on occasion when uh, the speaker flatly refuses to deal with the security at the border. And uh, we'll we'll be trying to see what's possible to do that. But at the end of the day, with Democrats in charge of the House, there's not that much we can do other than win the message. And I think we are doing that when we get on offense. Uh, but I don't think that the, uh, the uh, that we're doing enough right now to be on offense about what's actually happening at the border. You are, God bless you, and a few others that are out there talking about it. But the reality of what's happening at the border is even just starker on the ground when you go there and see with your own eyes the number of crossings, which has only gotten worse since the last time I was there, uh, the, the, the narrative that you get from the Border Patrol, as you well know and as your listeners well know, is – very uh, 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 troubling from the standpoint of what it means for our long-term national security and the extent to which cartels are running the show at our border. 
the most powerful nation in the world, is allowing cartels to make millions of dollars exploiting our asylum laws, driving people across the border, literally and figuratively, and racking up the number of people who are coming here using social services, filling hospitals, having birthright citizenship. We get a baby born almost every single day somewhere in and around the border with one of the folks that's brought into Border Patrol. We've got uh, 100,000 people who poured across in March. As you know, we've had stash houses found, ransom being paid back to cartels, and massive amounts of dangerous fentanyl, heroin, and other narcotics that are flowing between the ports of entry, not just at the ports of entry. This needs to stop, uh, and I think the president should be applauded for making this a signature issue, but I really think the administration needs to continue to step up. Uh, We need to get better people uh, driving the train at DHS, broadly speaking, at the top and getting everything done and accomplished that needs to be done. So the next question, obviously, is the next branch of government, Congress, the branch you're in as one member of one house. It's very difficult to do much. But what issues are you looking at personally to to focus on? You know, maybe it's even just being a voice. I mean, legislatively, there's not much you can do. But what what are you looking at that you feel you want to focus on in the coming months as this gets worse? Well, with respect to border security, which is, I think, what you're asking, the the very specific issue, the issue, pretty much the only issue that matters, well, two issues combined, is fixing asylum and fixing uh, Flores slash catch and release. Now, you and I both know, to some degree, Congress doesn't even need to act. A lot of people are hiding behind the fact that Congress needs to act, when in fact what we need to do is make decisions for us and stop allowing uh, the executive branch to not interpret asylum laws as uh, tightly or appropriately as they should interpret asylum laws and actually do what's needed to make the credible fear determinations and the other processes they could put in place right at the border right now, including enough to literally just shutting down the flow of anybody coming across the border, no matter what, if they don't have papers to legally cross. And I think that there's plenty of power to do that. You talk about it regularly. Your listeners know that. Uh, Article 200 of the president to to defend our border. But importantly in Congress, if if I'm going to be looking to do something, it's going to be to be raising that issue to get congressional action to go even further to make sure that we need to have uh, clarity with respect to asylum and clarity with respect to uh, the so-called Flores decision, which was essentially an expansion of a settlement that under a a judicial activism uh, that allows or, or really kind of created the environment in which now we've got catch and release operating uh, at extraordinary levels. As you know, uh, the, the, the numbers of people that are coming across, 90% of the people who are apprehended are literally immediately caught and released, very few of whom are going to come back for any kind of processing through courts. So, you know, put all the judges you want to right down there. If you're not going to interpret our asylum laws properly and do immediate credible fear decisions and either punt them back and turn them away right at the border, or if you're going to get them into court for a determination, make that processing occur within a week or 10 days, and then deport the 90% who are who have crossed the line, uh, then it's all a waste of time. We need to get serious about doing that. Yeah. I, and, you know, as I've spoken about on the show the last couple of uh, days, you know, there, there's about 30% are single adults. That is increasing as well now. Very new trend. Um, and as you noted, the cartels are exploiting that. A lot of really bad dudes coming in trying to evade in addition to those that are um, 
being released. And I don't get the impression that these guys are being detained for expedited removal either. I mean, I mean, Chip, I've, I've been spent time reading through the I, INA because I think all of us kind of lose confidence. You know, when you hear every day, you know, no, no one's illegal. Anyone could just come. Anyone. I mean, yeah, I guess we don't have immigration laws. And then you look at them and I mean, they were literally written to prevent this. You must detain. You must. I mean, expedited removal applies to almost all of them and we never use it. Um, you know, I, I just dealt with uh, ICE yesterday. Uh, this uh, child molester who was arrested in Philly, um, you know, I asked, hey, what's his story? What's his immigration history? He came in in 2012, and in 2016, an immigration judge closed his case. And I tried to find out, well, how did he even get to an immigration judge? He was a single adult. Why wasn't he placed in expedited removal? I mean, at some point, don't we need a cabal of maybe Freedom Caucus members to get together and just speak truth to power on this because I don't understand how you could adjudicate your way out of an invasion. You know, if this were a couple people, you could maybe deal with it that way. But this, we are so far beyond the laws. You look at um, 1222 of 8 USC that Congress uh, passed laws to say that they must detain them for a suitable period of time to know that they're not carrying communicable diseases. It takes several weeks to several months, depending on which disease, to rule that out, to get the blood work. I mean, you know, we're releasing them in Texas within 24, 48 hours. I, I just don't get how all those laws don't apply. It's interesting that you talk about timelines, right? You know, we've had 100 days of Democrat control, and they've focused on the Green New Deal. They've focused on Medicare for all. They've focused on busting the budget, not even presenting a budget, frankly. Uh, record amount of discretionary spending, uh, completely out of lockstep with the American people and what's happening at our border, and a flat refusal, as we saw during the shutdown and then any subsequent conversations, to deal with the uh, uh, you know crisis at our border. And so right now what I want to see is a concerted effort by Republicans and this administration to draw a line in the sand about what our vision is for border security by taking action now, you can't just make it a political issue and hope that that ushers in uh, a wave of Republicans in 2020, because, look, that's 18 months from now. <laughs> we can't wait. We've got to do what we need to do to defend the United States of America. And here's the thing for all those people that say, well, we got a lot of people here that want to come work. They want to have a shot at the American dream. You know what? I know. God bless them. Do the same thing. I don't begrudge them for wanting to do that. But number one, the rule of law matters. Number two, there are millions of people on waiting lists to come into this country. Number three, even if it's just a small percentage, very small percentage of people who are coming here who are affiliated with MS-13 or affiliated with terrorist networks or affiliated with the cartels, which should be considered terrorist networks, as you know, I've introduced a bill to do that, a small percentage that are carrying communicable diseases, it doesn't take many, right? If 100,000 people came in in March, if only 1% of that group is somehow tied into any of the categories I just described or others, that's 1,000 people. If it's a half of 1%, that's 500 people, right? Do the math. These are extraordinary numbers. <clears throat> I used to joke around when I was running the Attorney General's office, the first assistant AG under the current Attorney General, that of the 4,100 employees, if only 1% of them were doing something crazy on a given day, that's 41 <laughs> people doing something crazy. Well, that's what we're dealing with. I'm just tired of this, you know, 
uh, ignoring of the reality of what this actually means. We see it every day play out with people who are here illegally, who harm somebody, who you know rape somebody, who kills somebody. Uh, but that's not to speak that the vast majority of people coming across are going to do that. But it is to say it is our duty as a sovereign nation to secure the border, to have a sensible immigration policy, to stop the ridiculousness of the current version of birthright citizenship instead of one that is tied to being the child of a, of a citizen, somebody who's here uh, truly under our laws. So these are all things that I think are common sense. The American people are sick of. They're sick of watching Democrats literally drive us right off the cliff. But Republicans just kind of waving on the sidelines, looking at them going, ha ha, you're driving off the cliff instead of doing anything to, to, to stop driving the country off the cliff. Yeah, and, and that's what bothers me. This is not the type of thing that you could wait 18 months for. Um, I, I couldn't imagine what the numbers would look like, what the country would look like, um, n- not to mention the fact that, you know, as we noted, winning elections is not really going to help. They're not going to get 60 votes in the Senate, even if they win back the House, the president's reelected. And and again, the courts, the same courts doing their thing are going to do their thing. So, you know, if we don't change the way we look at that, I, I don't see that ever changing. And one more thing before we move on to health care. A lot of people are asking me about Texas. Texas is being slammed with this. If anyone would have a case to go to the courts and go the other way, hey, you know, illegals get to get standing and sue to invade our country, literally. I mean, I'm just reading now an AP article about hostile and aggressive migrants breaking the gate between the Guatemala and Mexican border. I mean, I guess they get standing now. Um, why can't the people of Texas get standing with the catch and release? to sue that the laws are not being fulfilled, the detention laws, the asylum laws, the expedited removal laws, the communicable disease laws, the um, verification of vaccination laws. I mean, it's on and on. Do do you think there's any angle for maybe the attorney general, I know you worked in the office, to counter-sue, so to speak, the administration for not following the law? Well, I would want to, I'm not trying to, punt, but I wouldn't want to defer largely to the ones who are studying this legally. I'm, I'm enough of a lawyer that I don't want to sure. go to school. And um, But I will say this. The state of Texas has been as aggressive as it can be, continues to be aggressive in trying to make sure that we are following the law and getting and seeking standing. You know, For example, when we're going to migrate to health care in a minute, getting into court to stop Obamacare when everybody in Washington is sitting on their hands and punting. Uh, the same thing in this area as well. There's a lot of issue. Obviously, Texas got in the court and dealt with DAPA uh, to, to, to end that program. Uh, I think they're, they're in court now on DACA. Uh, these are clearly unconstitutional and illegal programs that were created by the president of the United States, the former president. And um, so these are ways in which Texas has gotten into court when others were saying we didn't have standing. So I know that there are smart lawyers in the attorney general's office and in Texas generally, looking for the opportunity to get into court to stand up and defend the rule of law. And, and I would I would hope they're doing that here. Sure. No, I mean, I, I would just say I, I, I didn't mean to come from left field there. I want to put you on the spot. But the thing is, you, you said it yourself with the Obama's amnesty. They wound up getting standing. I mean, this is just much more. Yep. I mean, just the, the flow again, the biggest flow is now in RGV and El Paso, both in Texas. And, um, you know, for example, I saw an article on Breitbart, Texas, about um, the Laredo health director saying how he is watching 20 Congolese migrants for For potential Ebola, Ebola, yellow fever, malaria. And I I got it from, um, 
you know, straight from Border Patrol, from CBP Press themselves, when I really tried to press them on, I said, wait a minute, I know you guys are releasing many of them without even giving them over to ICE. And within 24, 48 hours, there's no way you're doing vaccinations or proper blood work and screening to ensure that there's no communicable diseases. And of course, you know, I don't get a real answer, but what I keep hearing is local officials. We work, we work with local, we work with local officials. Um, let, let me just see if I can pull this up here. Um, CBP, this is on background. They gave me CBP has interagency medical teams supporting priority locations and relies on local emergency medical services. Um, and they said this a couple times. CBT t- takes this issue very seriously and coordinates closely with local state health officials. I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Back in the day, back in the day, and still the way it works with legal immigration, you are stopped at a at a in Ellis Island at a quarantine checkpoint. You could not go yep. into the interior. You could not harm a state. You could not harm any. And in fact, in the 1840s, the Supreme Court started to say that states even had the power to redirect ships. And that's already budding into you know international commerce, very much not within the sure. state province. But it was so important to stop it. But, but the notion that the feds wouldn't stop this at the gate, at wherever we have them quarantine them, how the hell is it that Texas is on the hook? Basically, their only answer to me is, yeah, you know, we rely on the locals. They come into maybe the clinics of the NGOs, maybe the hospitals. Maybe if they start seeing outbreaks, they'll tell us about it. Why should this be on Texas? Well, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, it really shouldn't. You know, we're spending, the state of Texas is spending about $400 million a year, $800 million for our, our two-year biennium. Uh uh, on border security assets, providing assets that Border Patrol is using, uh, aerial acti- uh, assets, helicopters, that sort of thing, uh, cameras, uh, DPS support, sending our DPS troopers down to the border to support Border Patrol. All of that's a little different than what you're saying. My point is we're neck deep in using our own state dollars to do what is inherently an actual federal function of government. Uh, of the very few that there actually are, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a core constitutional function to secure our nation. And instead, our colleagues on the other side of the aisle, in particular, but frankly, on both sides of the aisle, uh, put their head in the sand and refuse to deal with the border crisis, refuse to recognize the primacy of, of the defense of our nation, both at our border and abroad, and making sure that we do it the right way, uh, and use, it, use all of that as an excuse to drive up non-defense discretionary spending, uh, which is why we've got $22 trillion of debt, which, by the way, we rack up $100 million of debt per hour. So while we've been on this phone call, we've almost racked up $50 million worth of debt. I mean, it's just this is what we're dealing with because of the complete incompetence and absurdity of those who pretend to be leaders in Washington in both sides of the aisle, ignoring the very real problems of securing our border, balancing our budget, giving us health care freedom back, which we never should have had taken away, having our men and women in uniform have a clear mission, the tools to do it, and the care when they get home, and then otherwise get the hell out of our way and let states do what they're supposed to do. It's truly remarkable. With all the money we spend, we can't keep yeah. out diseases that in 1907 – they were talking about how they were keeping out TB. And now this is not some racist Daniel Horowitz making stuff up here. This is from the Texas uh, Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, they they report, where is this here? Um, that, I'm just trying to pull up the exact quote. Um, 
and I don't think I have it in front of me, but they have on their website, you can Google Texas Health and Human Services, that Texas is one of the most, if not the most um, prone to TB now, the most cases. And uh, they note that it is most acute around the border. Um, and it is clearly from immigration. It was the highest factor, um, you know, like five, six times above diabetes or any other factors, uh, risk factors. They have a chart um, for it on their on their website. I, I, I just don't I, I don't understand this. We've regressed 110 years in terms of of this stuff, which is literally like the top, you know, federal uh, concern here. So um Anyway, it's it's wild. I know you got to run real quick, um, Chip. Healthcare. There's this fear that yep. um, Obamacare is going to be overturned. Let's just ignore the legal, you know, politicking for a minute. Why is it that nobody is focused on the problem of Obamacare? I hear every Republican opining, "Oh my gosh, we gotta we gotta reinstate Obamacare if it's if it's if the courts do anything to it." Well, I appreciate that question. I'd like to come back on again and talk, you know, for a long time about healthcare because I think it's really important that we get the right narrative out there and that we'd be talking about it on offense confidently. That we want to have 21st century healthcare that is the envy of the world. Ten years ago, we didn't even have iPhones, or 11 or 12 years ago. Now they've totally revolutionized the way we do things. We can do that with healthcare. The solution to healthcare is expanding direct primary care so you pay for your care directly, expanding health savings accounts so that you can use that money to pay for those uh, interactions with direct primary care services, and then making sure that you can pay for health sharing ministry covers or health sharing organizations to defray costs, and then catastrophic insurance that is not bound by the regulations of Obamacare, which was purposely designed to drive out private insurance and private health care in order to get to the Democrat dream of single-payer, rationed, government-run care. We know that, you know that, and we need to go on offense and quit apologizing. If Texas is successful in knocking out the legs from under Obamacare, the last thing we should do is go play on the Democrats' field and start talking about pre-existing additions <laughs> when it is Democrat policy and government policies that has created the environment where you get stuck in a position where you may have a yep. condition and not be covered. That was done because of wage control. It was done because of government. And we shouldn't try to match that with a government program because Republicans are too gutless to actually stand up and fight for market care to drive down the prices of our health care so that we can afford it. That's what we can do. We've got the opportunity of a lifetime right now to get it right. I put it this way. When the president made the right decision not to defend Obamacare in court against the Texas challenge, I said that the president and Texas is giving us a second chance to get health care right in this country and take it out of the hands of the fools in Washington on both sides of the aisle who think they know what's best. There you have it. If courts could tell us that 7.8 billion people could come into this country, then by golly, we are going to have our rights as Americans to free market health care. Thank you so much, Chip. And next time, we're going to do all health care. We're going to do an entire show on this, all right? Let's do it. We'll do it soon. Daniel, keep up the fight. All your listeners out there, hey, we can win this. Just keep fighting for the Constitution, fighting for limited government, and remember that we're still... Uh, the the sovereign here is the people. So let's keep at it. Absolutely. There you have it, folks. That was Chip Roy, congressman from the 21st District of Texas. You could check out his website. And by the way, you got to go to chiproy.com and donate because I'm just telling you, a guy who speaks with that much clarity on health care, he's not going to get money from the health care cartel like other Republicans do. A guy who speaks the truth. 
So if you want a guy like that, look, you know, we got to pony up for him. Um, not that he is enjoying the job so much and wants to come back. I don't even know if he will run. I'm assuming he will. Uh, I didn't ask him about that, but wasn't that a fabulous two minute clip of him at the end on healthcare? I think we're going to cut that, send it out on social media. Just his ability in two minutes to articulate how it's the Democrats that caused the problem of creating monopolies, creating pre-existing condition problem where people are left without real portable insurance like in everything else. And he's unafraid to talk about it. He has a pre-existing condition. He he had Hodgkin's disease recently. And, um, you know, again, speaking with a categorical approach, speaking to the moral clarity of the issue at the systemic level is the way to go. That is the way to go. It's the way to go on immigration. It's the way to go on healthcare. There's just too few people doing that. You know, just on the note of healthcare, now that we're just ended off with healthcare there, I just wanted to update you on my story with the kids going to the dentist, having to pay hundreds upon hundreds of dollars just for, for, uh, you know, routine cleaning. Um, you know, and I noted how Obamacare basically took what healthcare has long done and exacerbated under Obamacare to general medical care. It's done it to even dentistry now, which was really should have been low cost. There's nothing done in a dental office that should be like heart surgery. You know, you shouldn't have this insurance cartel business. You should have a competitive market where people pay on their own. Um, for routine stuff, competitive pricing, price transparency. And yet now more and more, it went the other way. Obamacare um, made it that between the mandates on employer coverage and then the people in the individual market, most of whom are subsidized now, uh, they cover it. So if you want to be one of those guys to just shop on your own, you're screwed, just like you were in a hospital. Now, even in a freaking dental office, it, it's hard to um, you know get competitive pricing for self-pay. And and it, it is so needless. It didn't have to be this way. And I got a lot of good feedback from you guys. I'm sorry if I didn't get a chance to answer all of you, but it seems like it sparked a lot of interest. And I just want to add another point to that. This practice, which again, we're obviously looking elsewhere because it's just way too much money. But they're, they're, part of it is they, they overcharge us. There was a problem because they're going through a transition. They're being bought out. And then Eureka, a light bulb went off in my mind. And I said to myself, wait a minute. Exactly because of what I said with cartel monopolies and this stupid government insurance mentality that's not even insurance, now getting involved in dentistry like it did the rest of medical care is also creating the other vices that were endemic and, and increasingly so in the rest of the medical field, even of dentistry. So one of the things that Obamacare did was accelerate the acquisitions and mergers, the death of private practice. Um, in, in, uh, you know, for OBGYN practices, everything is owned by the big hospital conglomerates and sometimes insurers. So you have Aetna OBGYN or, you know, United Health, uh, because the government basically took all of healthcare and put it on a silver platter to a couple of um, hospital healthcare administrator conglomerates and insurance companies between the Medicaid expansion, the regulatory scheme, and the Obamacare subsidies. So it's even doing that to dentistry now. 
You're not even at private practice dentistry in a few years. I just thought that was an amazing observation. I was shocked that this is happening even, even there. This is the part of Obamacare and just healthcare in general, government-run healthcare, that nobody's talking about. Who will speak up for the patients and doctors being hurt by the government empowerment of cartel-style healthcare? Look, Republicans have not only refused to repeal the core of Obamacare, they've now adopted it as their own, thereby making healthcare politics one-directional. And they're covering up all the problems with Obamacare and Medicaid expansion. It's, it's political malpractice. When Obamacare caused insurance premiums for individuals to skyrocket to over you know, $2,000 a month with record high deductibles, that was one thing. But a lot of people don't realize what it's done on the actual healthcare side. It's created an iron-fisted monopoly for a few large healthcare conglomerates, rapidly making private practice in America extinct. My fear is that unless this trend is reversed, reversed in the coming years, the, the current government-created monopoly is going to destroy private practice. What does that do? It permanently degrades healthcare delivery, competitive um, innovation. And it's going to place the consumer at an untenable disadvantage. I mean, j- just think about the this, and these are these are old facts. Alvalier Health conducted a study last year. They found that the number of physicians employed by hospital incre- hospitals increased from ninety five thousand in mid twenty twelve to about 155,000 in mid-2016. I would love to know what that number is now because I'm sure it's a lot higher. But that's a 63% increase in just four years. Prior to Obamacare, 26% of physicians worked for hospitals. In 2016, 42% worked for hospitals. And I would would love to, again, I I would bet to anything it's over 50% now. And, And... it's the trajectory because a lot of the ones that have established private practices, they're the older ones. I haven't, it could be the number exists, but I'd like to know what percentage of the new graduates from medical school and resident, you know, the, the ones that completed their residency, they're going into private practice. How many are just going straight to work for hospitals now? I'm sure that's a lot more than 42%. Wouldn't surprise me if it's 70, 80%. That's the death of private practice in America. From 2012 to 2016, the number of physician practices owned by hospital conglomerates doubled from 36,000 to 72,000. As of July 2016, 29% of all physician practices were owned by hospitals. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- th- this is this is nuts. And, um, you know, cardiac imaging has almost doubled in cost. Why? Because, um, you know, Medicare pays conglomerates more than private practice. So that's bid up the entire 
pricing. I didn't even get into oncology. There's a whole story with that. What 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 it's done there? The corporate you know buyups. Talk about people with cancer. You know the left always claims to care about that. Earlier research conducted by uh, this Avalier survey found that increased physician employment by hospitals caused Medicare costs for four healthcare services to rise $3.1 billion just between 2012 and 2015. Again, I would love, I'm going to try to get, this, this was my research from, from a little while ago. Look, I'm not one who exhibits nostalgia for bygone business models such as bank tellers being replaced by ATMs. But so long as the market efficiencies are dictating that change, none of this that's taking place in healthcare is the result of a free market. It's a result of government taking the existing regulatory burdens, government subsidy programs, tendentious uh, statutory treatment to a new level with Obamacare, Medicaid expansion, that is what's causing what's causing the destruction of private practice in America. The result: less freedom, fewer choices, poor service, and consumers and taxpayers getting gouged by a cascading effect from both the insurance cartel on the payer side and the healthcare administrator cartel on the provider side. And then sometimes they're playing both ends of the stick. I mean, it's the whole Walgreens. Uh, uh, Aetna merger. I'm sorry, CVS. Uh, Aetna merger. And you, and you know it. I mean, let me know your stories. Email me, dharwitz at blazemedia.com. I mean, let me know what you're seeing. But I'm certainly seeing this all the time with my you know doctors that we use. They're, they're like the post office. It's like the you know motor vehicle association dmv i mean it, 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 it's a total dumpster fire because the government has turned them into bureaucracies and in turn that's that's how they respond so i've identified a number of factors causing this this trend of corporate buyouts buying up a private practice monopolies, acquisitions, mergers. Number one, it takes a cartel to deal with a cartel. So unlike other market-based industries, and you know you have varying quasi-monopolies in other ones, but nothing this bad. Typically, a provider of a service or a good has to compete for business of 325 million American consumers. In this case, when it comes to healthcare, there's essentially one client, government. They shovel government contracts of Medicare and Medicaid to the insurance cartel. And even the private insurance is not private because it's mainly buttressed by the government-run tax exclusion for uh, employer-provided care, which you know tethered insurance to employment and tethered em- insurance to healthcare Right? It's mainly directly or indirectly subsidized by the government. And then everyone else is getting, you know, except for the few of us that aren't getting it from an employer and aren't getting subsidized, but everyone else is getting subsidized. 
So what that has collectively done is it's given health care, medical care over to the insurance, the healthcare insurance market. It's given it on a silver platter to them. So thus, commensurate with the growth of insurance, the insurance monopoly is the growth of the healthcare administrator conglomerate cartel to deal with them. You have a cartel on the consumer side, right? The government insurance monopoly is the consumer, not the patient. Thus, individual doctors have no bargaining power going up against the cartel payer contracts in a world of large hospital administrators. So that giant sucking sound you hear from private practice being driven into healthcare administrators is because of the cartel insurance system that was always bad. It was getting bad, but it was exacerbated by um, Obamacare. Remember, the individual mandate, the the Obamacare insurance subsidies, the massive Obamacare uh, Medicaid expansion, which is mainly run by, you know, it's not run by government. It's run by the you know United Health at nothing you know the five or so insurance companies their power grew exponentially. That's why their stock prices rose um, of major insurance companies rose two hundred seventy two percent between January twenty fourteen and twenty eighteen. Almost three times the growth of the S and P. Much like with the drug cartels we talk about so much, the secondary rung in the organization. In this case, the healthcare administrators reap the windfall. That's the story. But um, we're running out of time. There's uh, several more factors, and I didn't mean to get into this so much, but you know, Chip really got me excited about this. But again, all of that is now happening to dentistry. Watch the prices skyrocket. Whenever you don't have normal, sane market forces a buyer and a you know a, a seller and a consumer a provider and a consumer and it's all this government insurance scam it's going to create a cartel and a cartel and often they work together or downright merge so not only do you have vertical mergers you have horizontal so it's not only everyone on the provider side and everyone on the consumer slash insurance side merging but the insurance and the administrator providers are merging as well. So if you want to be a guy that look, I don't want a freebie. I just want to afford things, shop around, you know, have catastrophic for what, you know, hedge against risk, like you have in uh, cars and, and, and housing, but everything else, look, I'm willing to pay a reasonable price. No, you're screwed. You can't do that because a, you can't find a reasonable plan. You have to pay catastrophic. You have to pay like Cadillac plan levels for catastrophic insurance. Now, more than Cadillac levels before Obamacare, by the way, but then also pay a fortune for every last thing you're paying out of pocket because there is no competitiveness. So no middle-class family can live in dignity anymore. That's the truth of it, and this is the categorical messaging that Republicans have failed to harness, just like they continue to fail on, on immigration. Now, going back to immigration, will the administration change their tune? I don't know. Um, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, I laid it out in front of you why what they're doing now alone is a self-indictment of what they've already been doing and is not going to help. But with that said, maybe there are signs that this is part of building, you know, the infrastructure to go ahead and, you know, address the policies, the legalities more systemically. We're going to watch for that in the coming days. Um, 
lots lots of information I know we threw out today. I hope uh, you enjoyed it. As always, God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.